I give these little ruminations that I call sermons titles. They're usually the best part of the sermon, which is, is saying a whole lot, <laughs> and we don't publish them. Uh, with all respect to Wordsworth, I have called this one Intimations of Mortality. You can write that down if you are so inclined. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul spells out for us a survival guide. What we need as followers of Jesus for those times of life when we go off the road. Many things can take us into the ditch, failure, disgrace, all manner of crimes and misdemeanors. But we are looking uh, today at something a little more benign. That is, something no, not so much associated with one's own doings or misdoings. We're looking at illness, sickness, those times in life when something within one is not running smoothly and the dysfunction of the part threatens to disrupt the whole, if not to bring it down. Marie-Louise von Franz, an analyst, says that joy is the state that occurs when something is doing what it is supposed to do. We're full of joy, we are happy, when we are, or everything within us, or something around us, is doing what it is supposed to do. When illness strikes something, some part of the body or the soul stops doing what it is supposed to be doing within the economy of the whole and begins working for itself. Maybe it has no choice. It has come under attack by something from without and has to draw all the support it can for its own struggle for survival. And help also maybe must come from without, if the body's or soul's own inherent defenders, are, attackers rather, are to be routed. But there is no joy in life, in the simple act of living anymore, when we are under attack in this way. You're no longer working within the whole for the good of the whole, and you might bring the whole thing down with you. Part affects the whole of us, and then we as a part of another whole affect the whole that we are part of, and so on and so on. We are meant to live together by working together, everything and everyone in its place, doing what it is supposed to be doing, which is what God has called it to do. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We'll get to our two healing stories, but I'm still fascinated by this little hymn that St. Paul wrote or quotes. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Survival, Paul is saying, under attack, just keeping on, keeping on, is no small thing. If we can tune our bodies and souls 
to the Holy Spirit rhythm of the communio sanctorum, the wholeness of the body or the body politic, something resisting those things that tear us apart and tear us down from within and without, then just existing, going from breath to breath, from heartbeat to heartbeat, will bring us right into the heart and the breath of God, who is regulating things. If we endure, he is saying, we don't need any more victory than that. If we endure, we will reign with him. We shall judge angels, as the apostle says. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Stakes are high. Bear with me. Some of the ways we deny God, not by rejecting him outright, but by damning him, if you'll pardon the language, with faint praise. I'm looking particularly to get the thing called deism, which practically is as alive and well today as it was when it began to bring itself into being with original sin and flowered when the Enlightenment was taking shape. Give me an atheist any day than one who gives God lip service, but who has really exiled him like a great clockmaker to the periphery of the world he made, from there only to watch it unwind at a distance. Naaman the Syrian, in our story, this commander-in-chief, is no deist. He is ready for signs and wonders. Yet he's very disgruntled when he doesn't get them. He's ill, he's had this illness from birth, and it's cost him a great deal, not cost him his promotion and his place in the world, but it's a serious disfigurement. Go down to the stream, he is told. Do it yourself. You don't need anyone to lift up their hands and pray over you. That muddy stream, says Naaman, you call that a river? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? Some little girl, a slave, someone whom Naaman has actually torn away from her mother in his military exploits, is the source of success here. Her readiness to insinuate kindness, to witness to the God of grace, heals him. But God does more. God saves him. Behold, he says, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He's saved. Even if he's just saying that, he says it. Faith, we call it. Only God, the Holy Spirit, could put such words in his mouth, Paul himself will later say. And again, we have the slave girl to thank for putting it all together. She could well have been indisposed to see her master healed. She was not. Might this have played into his conversion as well, I wonder. The, un, the little slave girls, the unnamed girl's counterpart in the gospel narrative is Jesus. He heals the, like Naaman the Syrian, foreigners. They, however, are at the bottom of the food chain. Lepers, like Naaman, 
They were afflicted with this lifelong disease, but they were outcasts. Sin was, on the one hand, in Israel, held to be due to something you had done or didn't do, but on the other hand, it was contagious anyway. The counterparts of the prophet Elisha, who bless him, do nothing. They are the unknown priests. They do nothing, no surprise here, to contribute to the leper's healing. They get to pronounce on it, however, and only one leper thinks to give thanks. Wakaristeo, the word he used, our word for thanksgiving. Jesus says, rise, as in Christ is risen. To this leper, is this too a conversion? God doing the heavy lifting here, as we of Reformed sensibilities would have it. The Samaritan has to come back to give thanks. And to do that, he has to have had a change of heart somewhere. And he has to have had that desire implanted in his heart by Jesus, maybe, as an act of grace. The message to us, I think, is that if there is one thing for which we should give thanks, it is the desire to give thanks. However it comes to us or wherever we find it, it is the desire to give thanks for health, for restoration to health, and even for sickness. Karl Barth sums up his whole church dogmatic, the famous Weisse Elefanta, the white elephant, which we have downstairs in our library, with these words, all that he asks is our thanks. All that God asks in the end is our thanks. And that is what defines what makes a Eucharistic community such as ours. The capacity to give thanks and to seek to give thanks and to give thanks for the desire to give thanks and especially to give thanks when we don't want to give thanks and when many in our circumstances in this world would not give thanks. We have a lot of people in our community who are stricken with illness right now. It's been a hard year for many of us, and some of the rest of us have experienced more illness of body and soul than in the last year, than in the preceding decade. Sickness and death. People in whom within us something is not doing what it is supposed to do. It's been a rapid challenge for many of us, and an incentive to growth, to take something away. But for someone like me who has the chance at least to stand on the periphery of the holy ground that draws, that God draws around people of faith when he strikes them with illness, is the realization that I have never experienced in this community or any community in one year such joy. And I have encountered joy at its purest and clearest and strongest among the sick from their lips. Some of those will be healed, some will not. But all have been saved, and they know it. And their salvation is being worked out gloriously in their illness. And they give thanks. And they inspire 
the rest of us more than I can say. And I, as a priest, have learned to do nothing, or at least to do as little as necessary. Because if I thought for a moment I was the one to bring health and salvation into the door, I probably harbored that thought. I was in for a surprise. It was there already. And from person after person in this community, I have heard thanks that in sickness they have discovered the person of Jesus in a way they have never seen him before. Now, when someone is ill in this community or any community, I pray only for one thing, an end to illness. I pray for the Lord Jesus to show his love in some other way. I draw upon my charismatic roots and hammer the gates of heaven. I pray for what I want, and what I want is the illness to be healed now by Jesus to reach in and touch these people for it to be gone instantly. And I believe Jesus loves to hear us pray for that. It's music to his ears. But what I have learned from my brothers and sisters, I didn't find this in the charismatic community, interestingly enough where victory was everything. What I've learned in this community is to give thanks for health, let me assure you, but recognition that in sickness, in the depths of what looks to all the world like despair, that there is something to be given thanks for too, and there is real joy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We do not need to have every day to be a good day, to endure. We do not need a daily victory. What we need is to endure and to start the next day in prayer and in hope. If we endure, there will be victory, and that victory is the Lord's. Amen. Please stand.